Welcome. Good morning. We come now in the, the time of year where the church gathers and celebrates Advent. Uh, these four Sundays in December uh, has been set aside. At one point was a movable feast in the history of the church and now has been a set feast for most of Christendom for close to about less than a thousand years, depending on where you look. But we set aside this time of, of Advent where typically Christmas is seen as the center and we need no need to look around everywhere you go or turn on radio stations which obnoxiously begin playing Christmas music in July pretty soon. But the reality is, is that this, these cultural things that we see are, are carryovers of what was supposed to be and remains to be an important time on the church calendar. And while at all times the Christian man and women, woman and their, their children, and whether you're single or, or widowed or wherever you are in culture, the need for hope in the midst of a fallen world, the need for hope while you still are, are always clinging to the reality that you are in Christ and that you have a, a destined appointment with a triune God in, in eternity future where you will reap rewards that you did not earn and you receive glory that is not yours by nature. Rather, it's God's good mercy on you. But now while we're here in this this fallen kingdom, this time period between while we as Christian men and women while we are a part of God's kingdom that was inaugurated in the coming of Christ at advent. It's not here in fullness. And so we groan as we still bear the weight of our own sin and its consequences, as well as residing in a sinful world and seeing that everywhere we go. We need to be reminded of hope. And Advent is all about hope. It's about the work of God that no mind could conceive, that no eye could see, no mind could conceive the way in which God would show his love for his people. That in eternity past, in the counsel of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a determination that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, would come down from glory to humiliation to take on flesh to live a life effected and weighed down by the temptation of sin yet never sinning and being about the Father's work Knowing, as we've been going through Matthew, where that work ends. 
and humiliation and blood and broken flesh and a declaration of victory. When you look at Advent, when we think of the incarnation, it cannot be unattached from the redemption at the cross, nor can it be removed from the future glory when the Son returns to claim His own. Today we'll be reading and centering on a few passages from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I'll be reading from chapter 64 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 9, really centering on verse 4. I acknowledge, for those of you that might already be objecting, 64 is really the first two verses are a continuation of chapter 63 as an answer for the crying out. And so if you'd like to read back, please do that afterwards. Now I'll be reading 64, 1 through 9. Uh, after the time of, of the reading of the word, I ask that, that you take an opportunity to pray in consideration of the, verse, the words that we'll read momentarily. Ask God the Holy Spirit to renew your heart and your mind. Confess any sin you believe hidden. And prepare for the time of the ministry of the word. After that, I will pray for us corporately and we will look to the word. Reading now from 64, 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood. And the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look 
We are all your people. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the church gathers here on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the work of Christ on the cross, our Redeemer, our Messiah. Lord, we come to, even with our limited ability, we come with all that we have to offer praise for the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We offer our praise in the form of song, We petition you through corporate and individual prayer. We enjoy the fellowship of the saints which you've bestowed upon us. As we can come together and celebrate our shared union we have in Christ. Through God the Holy Spirit. Who indwells us, unites us. Teaches us. Lord, now, I pray as we enter into the time of the Word, that your people's minds would be attuned through the power of the Spirit. Distractions, worries, anxieties would be put aside for a time of meeting you through your holy and true Word. And God, may your people be shaped by the potter, more and more into the image of Christ. May we be convinced and convicted of our own sinfulness and waywardness. May we repent and turn our affections more fully to you, Lord. We pray for those who are outside of the faith, who are in our midst, Lord, we pray for a reckoning by the Word and the Spirit for unbelieving man, woman, and child that they would be made to recognize their sinfulness and their great need for a Redeemer. Ultimately, Lord, may you be glorified in this time of public worship. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
almost anyone who's read the Bible or heard a Bible story throughout their life is, has heard the story of, of King David. And as the prophet goes to find, as Samuel is going to find the next king, he's led to the house of Jesse and he has all of these magnificent sons. And yet it's the smaller one, the one that God proclaims is a man after his own heart. And we live in an age, and the church has been in the midst of an age where humanity will always try to make that their own proclamation rather than a pursuit of truth and the one true God. Man is always making an attempt to shape a God after his own heart. The idea of approaching life with the idea of your innate guiltlessness. We live in a culture, in the Western culture now, where that can't be more evident. We're reaping the rewards of a culture that for more than 70 years has said, truth is relative. And whatever you want, whatever you believe that makes you feel good, that's the way you should go. And now we see as there are billions of truth claims at the same time, the confusion that that leads to and the ruin and the loss of a realistic view of who man is, a creature who is changing and sinful, and rebellious, and an unchanging, perfect, almighty creator who calls to him and her to repent and believe. Isaiah lays out a case in the midst of what came prior to these verses, which is a crying out for mercy. As Israel is handed over to a foreign nation as God's instrument of rebuke for his unfaithful people. And in the midst of what appeared like God's utter and complete abandonment, Isaiah is constantly praying for hope and deliverance. And then he will go back to pointing out how sinful the people are and how the judgment is just. And then, oh, please, God, remember us. In the midst of recognizing their great idolatry, betrayal, and sinfulness, Isaiah clings to hope. And so let us turn here now to 64. 64, 1 and 2 really is a continuation of verses from 63, 15 to 19. Remembering, I hope if you don't, Isaiah was one long book with no chapters, no verses. And so the way this was broken up is, is essentially a 13th century um, edition. It's very good for studying, but at times leads us these things broken up a bit. And so while begging for mercy, Isaiah calls on hope. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down 
that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence as Isaiah is thinking and reminding the people they are the people of God. They are Israel. They are his chosen race. They are the light on the hill and yet the hill is burning. And the tribes are scattered. And Isaiah looks to see these foreign, unbelieving nations. And he calls on God. Oh, God, that you would come down and show yourself to these nations. That you would show yourself to those who despise your name. That you would boil the water, the heat of your presence, and the mountains might fear you coming down. The idea, the imagery that he's laying out is this thing of otherness. The idea of reverential fear, the knowledge of God and who God is in his perfection, in his holiness. If he were, you could phrase it, if you were to come down, God, this is what it would look like. The mountains would melt, the water would boil, and every nation would look and be forced to bow. In the midst of hopelessness, he's reminded of God's power. He's reminded of his position. He's reminding of his awesomeness. And as one who has hope, Isaiah, in a future inheritance... He needs to be reminded, as the people need to be reminded, of who God is. How small is God in your mind? What have you turned him into? When we celebrate Christmas, the picture of Jesus is often as an infant. Helpless, in need of care, which was with purpose in the way that Christ came into the world. In darkness, without any help, a young mother delivers an infant in a stable, in the most helpless estate, in the most... the. the, the absence of anything that you might need in a situation such as that. Yet angels herald his birth and declare not to worship them when people see them in awe. The world stops at this momentous occasion of God coming down. And Isaiah's imagining of the mountains flattening and the water boiling and God coming in his judgment. But when God comes in his first advent, his first coming, he comes in a stable. And the world changes. Christ enters into the world. God takes on flesh. And the hope of nations 
is born. The mighty God, ruler, creator, in all of his perfections, and all of his attributes, comes in a manner unanticipated. Isaiah, imagining what it would be like if God were to come down in his presence and what would happen to the nations and they would tremble at his presence. And he goes, verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. This is obviously a looking back to the giving of the law. He's reminding God, remember when you came down and we did not look for that to happen. We did not anticipate that to happen. And the mountains quaked. The imagery to be used is like when you, anyone goes on vacation um, and you go somewhere where there's mountains. Perhaps if you've never seen mountains before, you grew up in the Midwest or you grew up in Texas or wherever it might be. And you're like, oh, the hill country, look at those mountains. But then you actually go see mountains for the first time. And you're like, I can't talk. Like, look at that an unimaginable beauty. I have to climb it. I'm not alone in that, right? Like when you see it, it's like the first thought is climb it. You need the proper, no, I don't, I'm climbing right now. There's bears. Well, I can jump. So they're trying to take the imagery of something so imposing so majestic, so unconquerable, but God simply entering, coming down in the sphere or the realm of earth itself causes that which they view as so impossible, so majestic, so high and other to simply melt, to simply cease. Even the mountains in the imagery are acknowledging their creator. And so Isaiah, as he watches the ruin, as he's prophesying, knowing way back in the beginning of the book, none of these people are going to listen to me about repenting and believing in God. And yet here I am, 64 chapters later, still reminding them of his power, still reminding them of their sinfulness. But in the same time, calling on God, please rescue us. The only one who can rescue us from our enemies is you. And now Isaiah is going to turn it to say, who's our enemy? We are. Verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. The way this is written, this centerpiece of 64 is kind of the center where I, we want to look at today, when, especially when it comes to incarnation, when it comes to Advent, when it comes to hope. He's looking for the ways in which he wants God to deliver his people, which is to bring his presence down to the earth, destroy all before him, and make these enemies bow before him. But then he reminds 
his listener. He's reminded of himself through the Spirit. From the old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This is a long group of words that is a simple way of saying, there is no God before you. There is no God except for you. And we know and we hope in a God, the only true God, we patiently wait for your redemption. And so as Isaiah puts this out there for his people and for all people who would be called in the name of God from this time until now, no eye is heard or perceived by ear. Uh, If we look to, and I'll just briefly turn, this is a direct quote from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle, starting in verse 6 and just reading this quotation. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom that is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of this rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And going on in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So in the midst of calling for God's help, in the midst of then now acknowledging that no one's going to know the way in which he delivers this help, Paul will take this direct chunk of Isaiah while he's talking to this fallen church in Corinth. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That Christ, that God would come down. He would come down and he would not melt mountains. He would not boil the water. He would come in humiliation in a way that no one could conceive or perceive. In the form of man as an infant. In order to go marching to the cross. And rather than judge, he would heal. He would teach. He would look to those who had been ignored by a a wrong rendering of the law. He would look to the tax collectors and sinners. He would look to those who were the ruling class. He would look to those who were foreigners. And he would let them all know in different ways at different times in his earthly ministry. Hope. Salvation, the 
the kingdom of God is finally at hand. Now there'll be plenty of mountains melting and knees bowing and all of that when Christ returns, but when he came down in his incarnation, it was in humility. And for the glory that those who would wait for him would receive his very own righteousness. Then Isaiah, while in the midst of this, now turns to the people while still addressing it as as he's, he's talking to God. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Uh, the phrase, and we have been in our sins for a long time, is actually a short Hebrew phrase that, ju- phrase that just means continuously sinning. And so the emphasis is this immense amount of time. You were angry and we sinned in our sins. We have long been a long time. And shall we be saved? A proper reckoning for you and I is not to ignore the sin in our life. It's not to sin and just go, Jesus has it. That's not a biblical concept. Jesus does have it if you are in Christ. But the Christian man and woman looks like someone who grieves for their sin. I have sinned against God. And that is grievous. God, forgive me. Empower me. Strengthen me. Through the Spirit. And help me turn from that. Because Christ does have it. But look at the picture that Isaiah is writing of sin and the relationship with God and what it does. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is a word play. The, uh, I'm not going to describe the exact, because we know exactly what it means by polluted garment, just to say it's something that is ceremonially unclean. And so looking at the works, which they're like all our righteous deeds, everything, oh, look how good I'm doing, look what I'm doing here, look what I'm doing there, and it's all like a garment That has to be thrown in the fire and burned up. That's how good all your good deeds are. Burned up like a fire. Because we are, they were unclean. He's recognizing it. God's the one who waits on us. God's the one who is holy. God's the one who's made the way for us and will rescue us and will redeem us. 
Here in Isaiah, he's pointing to the Israelites to hope in the future. Here now in the church age, we know this hope has already arrived in the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the sending of the spirit, the institution of the church. We look back and we should be the people of the greatest hope. And yet so often we live like we're hopeless. Only God can satisfy. That's supposed to be our cry. You and you alone are our strength and our shield. You are the hope of my heart forever. The psalmist cries out over and over what the life of of the one who is wrought and bought by God is to live a life of hope in the midst of a true understanding of just how rebellious you are by nature. All, all are unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are a polluted garment. And then look at this. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind blow us away. Think of that imagery. Our sin comes in the form of temptation. And it's before you, the temptation. And there it is. And Paul says in the same book, the temptation's there. God has made a way for you to flee. Just like Joseph, leaving your clothes behind, whatever it is, like flee from the temptation. And there it is. Yet how often do we choose not to flee? How often, rather, do we pursue, just like the Israelites of old, take hold of it? We sin. And then, like the wind, it takes you away. Maybe down a road you don't think you can recover from. He even continues, the imagery gets even more visual. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. Listen to this. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The wind, like like the wind, your iniquities, your sin, blows you and takes you along this path. And then it's this imagery of your iniquities, your inner hand, and your melting in your indulgence. You remember when you were a kid, or if you are a kid now, if like the very, very rare chance that you put a, a like a piece of chocolate candy in your pocket and then you forgot it was there, and then you take it out and it's like some form of chocolate milk, and you're like, this is probably still edible. And you take the wrapper off and you're like, I can't, I don't know, it's everywhere. The idea of our sins, our rebellion against God. When we indulge, when we don't flee, 
It carries us away. It burns us up. And that's the state we were in in unbelief. Just flying in the wind, burning up. And whatever point in your life you came to faith, whether as a small child or as an old man or woman, was the moment that God plucked you out of history and said, mine. All mine. And yes, you're going to struggle. We do struggle with temptation and sin as believers because we're not on the other side of glory yet. But when God steps into history by coming down, he was declaring mine. When we've been reading about him walking along and talking about the kingdom, talking about those who inhabit the kingdom, he's talking about you. If you believe in Christ, if you're a part of the church, he was talking about and thinking about all of those who would be a part of his kingdom. That includes you. As he was taking the lashes, as he was spat on, as he had the crown of thorns, as he was mocked, as his possessions were stolen, his heart and mind it was on those who were given to him by the Father. And as he was on the cross and cried out, it is finished. He was saying, those that are mine are mine forever. Whatever and wherever your struggle is with sin, Christ demands you give that to him. God came down for you and for I. And for all of those who will call in the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. And we have a hope in the midst of a broken, chaotic, heart-wrenching world that the one who came in the form of a babe and lived his life and went to the cross will return one day in glory and power and the mountains will crumble and his enemies will bow. And those who are a part of his kingdom will receive their eternal reward. Until such a time, know you are empowered to live this life by the power of the Spirit and the blood of Christ to do the good works that have been put before you in eternity past to run the race in perseverance of the Christian life until such a time as the Lord takes you home or he returns. Hope is the celebration of this season. And hope calls us to worship of the God who has come down.
Heavenly Father, as we consider the work of your hand, as we consider the great mercies you have put upon us, we look to the book of Isaiah. We are humbled by the mercies of God. We are in awe of His power. And while we are sinners, while we are unclean, He makes us clean. God, turn our affections away from the comforts, distractions, and pleasures of this world and rather shape them and turn them towards our Lord and our Redeemer and our King. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.